Guys, oh, there we are. Thank you. Hebrews 13, 7 through 14, let me read that. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods, which are of no value to those who eat them. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Our author wants his readers to remember, better translation, keep in mind their leaders. Now, he will refer to current leaders down in verse 17. We'll look at that in a couple weeks. But he's referring to former leaders here in verse 7. And we know they're former leaders because they spoke, past tense, the word of God. We know they're former leaders because the recipients of this letter are able to consider the outcome of their lives. The original language is something like having watched the way their lives came out. So the leaders he refers to are people who have run their race already. They persevered and they remained faithful. And that calls for imitation. But it's not their lifestyle generally so much as their faith specifically that readers are to imitate. The word faith here, pistis in Greek, could be and sometimes is in the Bible translated faithfulness. Faith and faithfulness are a matched set. They're not sold separately. Christians often have argued over whether someone who exercises faith in Jesus can lose his salvation. Well, when you hear one of those arguments, just remember that that word pistis refers to both faith and faithfulness, reliance and reliability. A person with the kind of faith in Jesus that results in faithfulness to Jesus isn't going to fall from Jesus. Our author reminds his readers that they have watched the outcome of their readers' way of life. The church ought to watch how their leaders conduct themselves. It's easy to talk a good game, but leaders must do more than talk. They must live. Their way of life, the way they conduct themselves, their overall lifestyle should radiate faith. Faith should be the... I have a, something I keep in my Bible that I wrote last year. The life, Lord, I want is. And one of the things that I said to the Lord and remind myself of often is the life I want. And the life I want, faith will be the biggest thing about me. My confidence in you. That's what these readers saw in their leaders. And it was worthy of imitation. A man's life is always more forcible than his speech, C.H. Spurgeon said. When men take stock of him, they reckon their deeds, his deeds as dollars and his words as pennies. 
If his life and doctrine disagree, the mass of onlookers accept his practice and reject his preaching. The German pastor Nicholas Haussmann died in 1522. The man who spoke his eulogy was Martin Luther. Martin Luther said about him, what we preach, he lived. Every Christian leader should conduct himself in such a way that the speaker at his funeral will be able to say about him, what he preached, he lived. There's abundance today of gifted and well-known Christian leaders in the world. We hear them on the radio, see them on TV, we read their blogs on the internet, but we usually can't see how they live. We don't know the outcome of their way of life. I remember a woman who sat next to me during a break at a retreat at which I was speaking years ago. She started telling me about her husband, who's, who had a Christian radio program in the city nearby and uh, was well-known in the area. She said that she'd recently left him after he committed adultery yet again with a woman on his staff. And she told me that his ministry was engaged in deceptive financial practices. Those things were people, were things that people would never find out about who only knew that teacher from edited radio broadcasts. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't listen to radio or TV or internet preachers. Many of them are remarkably gifted people whom God can and will use in your life. But be careful. You can't see how their life will turn out. Look at verse 8 now. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Commentators read this and they find that verse surprising. It seems sudden. It's unexpected. What's it doing there? One excellent scholar calls this sentence an apparently isolated statement with no syntactic connection with what precedes or follows. Its content also seems general and unrelated to the surrounding exhortations. It's hard to disagree with that scholar's first observation, but not with the second. The content of this verse, verse 8, grows directly out of the previous verse. Here's how it fits. Our author has just urged his readers, urges us as well, to imitate the faith of their leaders. They knew those leaders. They watched them over a period of years. They had seen how they lived, how they died, and how through it all they trusted the Lord to be with them. They knew from experience that he would never leave them nor forsake them. So they boldly said, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. And now he says to those readers, you've seen your leader's faith through thick and thin. You've seen how God never abandoned them. Now imitate their faith in these hard times. Don't give up on the God who isn't going to give up on you. He was faithful to your leaders and he'll be faithful to you. Don't you know? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday with your leaders, today with you, and forever. Or, in the word order of the original language, Jesus Christ, yesterday and today the same and forever. The Lord hasn't changed. and won't change. What you've seen him do for your leaders, our author is saying, he'll do for you. So you can imitate their faith. Now take a moment and think about the spiritual leaders in your life. Have they stood the test of time, of trial, opposition, and all the while kept trusting in God? If so, imitate them. Act like them. 
Trust the Lord like them. And while you're acting like them, the Lord will act like himself. He will never leave you, nor forsake you. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. Now look at verse 9. That t- verse 9 takes us from the hardest rock reality of an unchanging Savior to the shifting sands of popular teaching. Don't be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods, which are of no value to those who eat them. All kinds of various teachings translates a phrase that could be rendered teachings various and strange, where the word various comes from a root meaning many-colored. There are a thousand shades of teaching out there, and you know what? That's not a bad thing. The truth of Christ is so glorious and magnificent that it takes a thousand shades to reveal its beauty. But the question is, does the light of Christ shine through a particular shade of teaching? Does this shade of teaching reveal the glory of Jesus? Or does it reveal the skill of the teacher? Now, remember what's been taking place in the background of this letter to the Hebrews. Within the Jewish Christian community, there has been pressure from outside to draw these Jesus Messiah Jews back into traditional Jewish practices. And some of the Christians are thinking seriously about doing that. They're not meeting together as often as they did. They've been wondering about whether they should once again offer sacrifices and take part in rituals like the Day of Atonement. In some ways, that would make things so much easier for them. Now we learn that the pressure was not just from without, but from within. There were teachers influencing these Christ followers to turn back to their former practices, like eating kosher foods and keeping sacred days and taking part in Jewish rituals. They weren't just telling them that it was okay to take part in these rituals, but that they should take part in these rituals. The wording of this verse suggests that at least some of those strange teachings directed Christians to take part in Jewish ceremonial law. They were being told to follow a kosher diet, or more precisely, to take part in eating meat that had been ritually sacrificed, like a peace offering or like Passover itself. Come back and do these things. You'll be, you'll be more spiritually alive and vibrant and healthy. But that contradicts the whole tenor of our author's teaching. He's been blunt. The sacrifices required by the law have been superseded by the one sacrifice of Christ. In chapter 8, verse 13, he called the old covenant that governed the festivals and their attendant sacrifices obsolete. And the Greek word he used means worn out, decayed. In chapter 10, he wrote, he sets aside the first, that is the sacrifices mandated by the law under the first covenant. He sets aside the first to establish the second, that is the sacrifice of Christ. Why would people want to go back to the covenant with its sacrifices, its feasts, its diets? Well, I think there are a number of answers to that question. I'll mention just two. First, going back to the sacrifices and feasts of the old covenant offered people the chance to feel like they were earning God's favor. They were earning their way. That desire to justify ourselves by earning our own way just keeps cropping up in our lives. And it must be guarded against. And a second reason is this. They probably had friends who were involved in all those old covenant rituals and who said things to them like, 
boy, I had this wonderful experience when I, and you can fill in the blank, when I attended the Passover Seder. Oh, super. Man, I just felt so close to God. Or when I went to Jerusalem for the Day of Atonement. Man, that was awesome. Or I joined the synagogue for a new moon celebration. And people, you know, they say the same kind of things today. They just fill in the blanks differently. I had this wonderful experience when I went on the Rick Warren diet, when I spoke in tongues, when I worshipped in a liturgical church, when I worshipped in a non-liturgical church, when I tried contemplative prayer. And the implication then is, and you should do the same. Now, our author was disturbed by these practices because he saw them for what they were, a substitute for a crucified Christ. But there is no substitute for a crucified Christ. The things that I just mentioned in that latter list, they may have their place, but they can't replace Jesus. When you hear a teacher advocating some particular practice, what our author calls all kinds of strange teachings, always look to see if the teacher is more excited about the practice that he or she advocates than about Jesus. If the teacher talks with more enthusiasm about the practice or the viewpoint that he or she has discovered than about the Savior, and you can tell if you'll listen, then forget that teacher. Get away from that teacher. A friend from church recently gave me a magazine article that went into great detail describing the purpose of the Jewish prayer shawl and advocating its use by contemporary Christians. And I read the article, not very well, but I read the article and thought the author had taken too free a hand, frankly, with the biblical text and had even misused an Aramaic phrase in order to make his point. But the thing that troubled me most about the article was that it used Jesus to talk about the subject the author was excited about rather than use the subject to talk about the Savior whom he should have been excited about. Our author says it's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods, which are of no value to those who eat them. Grace strengthens our heart, the part of us that wills and chooses the central core of our being. But ceremonial foods and the ceremonies from which they come, they don't strengthen the heart. They don't increase our ability to choose God in his way. They're of no value to those who eat them, verse 9 says. More literally, they don't profit those who walk in them. We should ask of any teaching that comes our way, does it profit me? Am I better off because of it? Do I know God better? Is my life more authentic? Do I love more generously? Do I live more courageously because of this teaching? The grace mentioned in verse 9 takes many forms. Uh, That's the thing about grace, which makes it really hard to define. People have offered a few definitions of grace. Grace is hard. If you look at the, the use of that word throughout Scripture, it's very hard to nail down and define. It takes many forms. Forgiveness. Strength, understanding, help. But it always comes as a gift we receive from God. The opposite of grace is a wage, which is something we receive not as a gift, but as a payment. We deserve forgiveness. Yeah, I always laugh when somebody says that. You know, he's done so much, he deserves forgiveness. How do you deserve forgiveness? 
But people say that. Like we des- he deserves forgiveness. He worked for his strength. He developed understanding, merited help. One telltale sign that a teaching is foreign to true Christianity is that it states, or more likely it implies, that we can merit these gifts. We can merit them if we perform certain acts or rituals. There's an important difference between receiving forgiveness, strength, understanding, help as a grace and earning the same things as a wage. When we receive these things as a grace, God comes with them. We receive not just forgiveness, but the forgiving God. Not just strength, but the mighty God, the wise God, the God who is our help in ages past. But when we earn these things as a wage, they come alone. God's not part of the deal. Our author warns us that these strange teachings can carry us away. Such teachings don't usually carry people away violently, like a kidnapper, but gently like a tide. A person doesn't realize that he's being carried away until one day he wakes up and he finds that Jesus is far away, and so are Jesus' people. By the way, if you try to separate Jesus, oh, I'm close to Jesus, but I don't like his people, something's wrong. Now look at verse 10. Verse 10, I told my wife this week, I just, I'm, I'm struggling. Wow. It's so easy to get academic and theological in this passage. I, I don't want to just do that. I want to be practical for us too. Verse 10 is the most difficult one. It's been subject to all kinds of interpretations. Some scholars, mostly Catholics, but some Protestants, think our author is referring to, to communion in verse 10 when he says, we have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. But other scholars, mostly Protestant, but some Catholics, for example, Thomas Aquinas, think just the opposite. The altar doesn't refer to Holy Communion. Holy Communion, what we do here this morning, refers to the altar. Now let's examine this verse a little and, and so we can understand it better. First, the word we have. And it is just one word in the original language. We have. Our author has already said, we have Christ is our high priest. That's chapter 4, verse 15, chapter 8, verse 1. We have hope in Christ as our anchor. That's chapter 6, verse 19. We have a heavenly city for our future home. That's verse 14 of this passage. Here he says that we have an altar. Now, we might think of the communion table as the altar, but we would surely be mistaken. In New Testament times, The church didn't have communion tables. When this letter was written, church buildings with naves and chancels and sanctuaries and altars didn't exist and hadn't even been imagined. When early Christians took Holy Communion, they did so as part of a common meal that the whole church shared together. It would be 200 years before the Bishop of Cyprus first referred to the table on which the bread and wine were laid as an altar. When our author author says we have an altar, he's not thinking of a table in a church, but a cross on a hill where God presented his own sacrifice 
of atonement. Heaven's altar, the place of sacrifice, was, verse 13, outside the city gate where Jesus Messiah offered himself as the sacrifice for our sins. The communion meal speaks of that altar, not the other way around. And we connect to that altar and to the one who was offered there by faith. We're not saved because we take communion. We take communion because we're saved by the Christ of the cross. You and I can take communion, eat the Lord's Supper, celebrate the Eucharist, whatever term you prefer. They're all good. We can do that anywhere. Many of us remember, uh, many of us will remember when Neil Armstrong, who died back in August this year, stepped on the moon's surface with the words, that's one small step for a man. He meant to say a man. He just said man. But that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. But most people don't remember what his fellow astronaut, do you even remember what his name was? Buzz Aldrin, yeah. (laughs) Poor Buzz. (laughs) The second guy on the moon of all things and nobody remembers his name. (laughs) What Buzz Aldrin said. Now his first speech, frankly, wasn't as dramatic as Neil's speech. He said, I'd like to take this opportunity to ask every person listening in whoever and wherever they may be, to pause for a moment and contemplate the events of the past few hours and to give thanks in his or her own way. And then the radio blacked out. And people here didn't hear what he said next. And that was intentional. Because Madeline Murray O'Hare had threatened to sue over use of (laughs) biblical passages from space. But what he said was taken from John chapter 15. The words of Jesus, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. You know what he did next? There on the surface of the moon, he opened a communion kit that his church had prepared for him. And he ate the Lord's Supper. Holy communion, the sinner's feast, can be taken in any place at any time. But that's only because Christ died in a particular place outside the city gate on the altar of heaven, the cross, at a particular time. He appeared, our author said, back in chapter 9, once for all, at the end of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Pray together. Almighty God, we honor your Son here, our Savior, the bridge between worlds, God of very God, but also very man of man. Who bridged the world with a cross. We submit to you, Lord Jesus, and trust in you. We worship you now. Amen.